Hey everyone, welcome to Epicurean Unicorn, the podcast where we delve into the science and art of bread, patisserie, and so much more. We're interviewing and conversing with experts on these items so that we can better understand and help you learn more about the wonderful culinary world we live in. Our hosts, Amanda, Brayden, and me, Connie, will be guiding you on the delicious adventure that we have in store. So sit back, buckle up, and get ready to rumble. Hello, and welcome to another magical episode of Epicurean Unicorn. I am one of your hosts, Brayden. And it looks like it's just me here again today. All right. How is everyone? Everyone's good? Glad. Thank you all so much for answering. I hope that wherever you were, you just got a little embarrassed and you actually yelled out to your phone or listening device, I'm great, Braden. How are you? Well, I'm great, too. Today on the show, we were lucky enough to have Matthew Kaplowitz from the podcast, wait for it, Trek Untold. Definitely not, wink wink, a show about Star Trek. I happened to start talking to Matthew, and I found out something really interesting about his past. Because you're all probably saying, uh, hey, hey Braden, this, this is a show about food, not a show about Star Trek, as much as you'd like to change that. And I would say, you know what? You're right. There is, though, a lot of intersection, because everyone's got to eat, and everyone loves food. What I found out about Matthew is that he had been a food critic. We were talking, and he said, hey, If you ever need a food critic to come on the show and talk about what that's like, let me know. I really thought at first maybe he knew a food critic. I found out later it was him. He had been a food critic, and you're going to hear all about that experience. To hear about that, of course, we have to go down to Club Unicorn. So as we always do, we're going to go down these stairs. We're going to go through this door. We're going to say, hey, Unicorn Bouncer, what's up? We're going to go look at the buffet. We're going to see what's going on with Unicorn Chef. It looks like today Unicorn Chef has made a wide variety of food. It's a smorgasbord here at Club Unicorn. We've got everything. Oh man, in honor of Matthew and all the different foods that he got to try as a food critic, I can't even begin to describe how wonderful all this food looks. Which is probably making you say, well, how do I get into Club Unicorn? Good question. What you can do is go on the podcast app of your choice, leave a five-star review, write something about us, anything at all. doesn't even have to be nice. Send it over to us at epicureanunicorn at parados.com, and we'll read it here, and you will be in Club Unicorn. Now, if you use Apple Podcasts, that is the one place where we do check, so you don't have to send it over to us, unless you're outside of the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., take that screenshot and send it to epicureanunicorn at parados.com. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to our conversation with Matthew. It was really interesting to hear all about what it was like being a food critic, and more importantly, how he got into it. Very interesting story from someone who didn't exactly have a traditional food background that you might think of for becoming a food critic. I, though, won't steal Matthew's thunder or try to take over his hosting gig, at least not right now. Better look out there, Matthew. I hope everyone enjoys this conversation just as much as I did. Here we go. Let's hit it. Matthew, hello, and thank you so much for taking some time out for us today. How have you been? I'm Roy Braden. Thank you so much for having me on. You are someone who produces one of my favorite Star Trek podcasts. Surprise, surprise to anybody who's listening, I like something Star Trek. It's called Trek Untold. 
yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I, I also like the show very much too. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> basically, my pandemic project, I kind of started it uh, in May 2020, which feels so far away right now. It's kind of amazing how long those two years have felt. But uh, that was my, my pandemic project. And uh, yeah, it's basically a, a Star Trek-centric show, but it's not like the super-duper kind of nerdy ones where we're getting deep into the sci-fi parts. It's uh, it's kind of like my excuse to talk to a lot of celebrities and actors and behind-the-scenes people and crew uh, folks who happen to work or contribute in some way to the Star Trek universe. And it's a pretty big universe because that's like, you know, like I said, it's actors. But it's also, you know, the show is basically the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. So it's about the character actors who you see in like one or two episodes or sometimes a few more, but not really necessarily the main leads. It's about like the stunt performers, the visual effects crew, the composers, behind the scenes people, all sorts of ancillary roles as well that happen in, in a Star Trek thing. So, you know, we kind of just bounce around, talk to people, learn about what they do and hear the stories and experiences that made them who they are today. I love it because you've just said it's the same thing for you that this is for me, an excuse to talk to people I find interesting. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much that's that's why we do this here. And the reason that we're talking is we got to interacting a little bit on social media, something that I am very new at and anybody who sees what I do probably goes not very good at. But you mentioned to me something that it kind of just blew my mind because I know you as a person who talks about Star Trek and really creative pursuits. And I found out that you before this were a food critic. Yes, uh, it, it is a dark part of my past. It's true. <laughs> so I need to know, how does one a get into being a food critic? Sort of what in your background drew you to it? But then after that... What is it that you did as a food critic? I just I want to get into all of it. So let's let's start with how do you get into it? How does one become a food critic? Well, you know how you said like our podcast are basically excuses to talk to people we want to talk to. Yep, indeed. Becoming a food critic is basically finding an excuse to eat where I want to eat. <laughs> you are a very clever man. I'm learning very clever. You got to learn to work the system. That's how you do these things, Braden. That's how you got to do it. Uh, so that's that's pretty much how the story was. It's kind of just the ultimate opportunity, uh, and I am the ultimate opportunist to make a WWE reference. Uh, so I was at the time working at a local newspaper, and I was there as a graphic designer. So most of my job, uh, you know, it was quote unquote graphic designer, but really my job was like maintaining and updating the website once a week, and occasionally like doing some layouts for things, and kind of like transferring a written article into a version that can be shown on the web. So at the time, and I was doing that, and as part of that, I'm basically reading all these people's articles and that kind of thing. And every week, usually, it wasn't always every week, but usually there was a food review of some kind. And typically it was written by either the owner or uh, like one of the senior staff writers. And I found them to be just really bad and <laughs> just just awful, awful. They were terror bad. Uh, they were so bad, you to use that word, it doesn't even really exist. <laughs> And I feel bad saying that because like these folks, you know, these are our senior writers. These are folks who've been around a while. And this is like, again, the owner of the company doing this. And they weren't very good. Uh, they were like, the, the steak was very nice. I enjoyed it greatly. Oh, dear. It was like that kind of writing. And it just bugged me so much. And, uh, you know, at the same time, too, I was kind of like slowly expanding my own palate. Because I've always been into food. I've always been, uh, I guess, even before the word existed, a foodie. Uh, I always had an interest in cooking. And uh, I grew up watching PBS cooking shows. And, you know, once I got to college, I'd learn how to fend for myself. Right. So that's where the cooking channel came in and uh, all those things there. So, you know, my, my education was through celebrity chefs and Iron Chef. And that kind of got me like wanting to try more food and taste more foods. And really, what better way to do that while also getting paid than being a food critic? So uh, basically, I just went one day 
And uh, I don't remember if I asked somebody or how I did it. I think I might have just done it on my own. I might have just gone to like a local pizzeria. I took some photos. I wrote up something and I sent it over to like the editor. And once I got permission from uh, my my head of the graphic design department, she was like, sure, I don't care what you do. As long as you do my job, it doesn't matter what you do <laughs> otherwise. So get yourself fed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I went to like some local pizzeria and I wrote this like, I guess, a pretty nice review because they, they liked mm-hmm. it um, of this like, you know, wonderful pizzeria that no longer exists because, of course, you know, mm. where, where I was working, they were constantly changing owners every, you know, two years, a new yeah, place yeah. comes in. But uh, this place had like this amazing Sicilian style chicken marsala pizza. And so like that was the focus of my piece. So I basically just kind of went into whatever I wrote, you know, 600 word article on it, sent it over, took the photos. They ran with it. They're like, sure, if we got nothing going this week, so we'll do it, I guess. Mm. Uh, and then the owner of the paper came over and she was like, this is so good. It was so mouthwatering. You should do these more for us. <laughs> and it's. That's kind of uh, the beginning of how uh, the snowball began. <laughs> wow. So something that you say on your show, I won't steal your thunder. Would you like to share how you end your show? Fortune favors the bold. Yeah, you've just, you're living proof of that. Wow. Nothing gets done unless you give it a try. <laughs> well, I, I can't agree more. And that's really, that's a great way. Did you have a background in writing or you're just a guy who loves food is there as a graphic designer and said, I can write better than these articles, which are mainly, they sound like something my three-year-old would read to learn how to read. Maybe fourth grade, I'd say. <laughs> I don't want to smirch these people too much. Uh, I don't, I guess I, I had like, I liked writing. I don't really mm-hmm. know if I had necessarily like a professional background. I really didn't. I I'd like at the time, let's see, I, I was probably writing some things here and there, but okay. nothing too crazy. It was mostly for me and creative mm-hmm. writing. You know, I'm I'm I do like to write, and it's something I, I like to do. Whether it's like analyses, I'm big on doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or if it was like poetry and prose, um, in fact, like in high school, I was the president of the poetry club for my senior year, so okay. I was in charge of that. I got to write things, got to edit all of that. And so, I mean, writing is a part of me. I guess I don't really view it as much uh, anymore as a professional thing because it's just kind of folded into everything else I do. Because uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I, other beyond this too, you know, beyond at that point, um, I think I was basically a year away from starting my first YouTube channel, and okay. that got me to writing scripts. And then I started another website a few years later, and that meant writing a lot of articles. So writing was always a part of uh, the outlets I used in my creativity. But uh, I, I guess like as far as, you know, if this newspaper wanted to see a portfolio of some examples, I'd have like nothing to really show them except an old high school Salma Gundy Club magazine. <laughs> and that's kind of why I decided to kind of just like go out on my own and uh, ultimately just make my own proof of concept to show yeah. them like, here's what you get. And uh, it worked out. That's great. I'm really happy that it worked out because it's giving me something that's honestly just so entertaining to me when I learned this. You go in, you get this position now. They love the piece that you wrote. What happens from there? I'm curious, how does it work? Are you as now food critic at large deciding here's a new restaurant that's opening or is the paper sending you to specific restaurants? What is that like? being that critic who's deciding where you go what you try well here's the problem with somebody like me who favors to be fortunate and being bold and all that stuff i say uh you know the problem with that is that you know if you give me an inch i'm gonna take a mile (laughs) so uh yeah the way that kind of works is ultimately it being a local newspaper for the most part the reviews you're going to be doing are going to be people who are paying for ad space and mm. to, the, to the newspaper, their views are like basically a fluffy way to get them incorporated into the paper mm-hmm. in a different way. It's not just putting up a coupon or a little advertisement, which I would also usually be graphic designing for the paper, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, for the most part, they would give me assignments. And, uh, you know, it didn't take long for me basically to be like the go to person for this, because, like I said, there really was no one else specializing in it. Uh, and 
by me taking this, it kind of made sure those folks had time to focus on other things. Whereas I'm not doing anything really, so I can go ahead and do this, and it doesn't really change my schedule. Um, so for the most part, they'd be assigned to me places where to go. It'd be like, hey, you, you got to go to this place. Um, they would. I, I actually can't recall if I made the appointments or or if they did. I'm pretty sure they made the appointments for me. Okay. But again, this is me, so I usually push the envelope in some way or some form to see how far I can get away with things. So um, <laughs> basically, I, I went on my own. I went rogue a few times and just tried to go to oh. a few places I had interest in. Okay. And just to see what they would say, because you know, again, for the most part. Uh, these places were paid sponsors, so that meant the food was also comped. It mm-hmm. was guaranteed to be comped. Mm-hmm. The downside of that is that they also knew I was coming. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of change things, kind of changes the nature of things. So, you know, there were definitely places I would go to. It wasn't many, unfortunately, at the time, but there were a few that I did sneak in. There were places I wanted to go to. I had to keep the price point pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were kind of to at least, you know, allow me to do this, let me run with it, and they would at least reimburse me in some form or capacity. But for the most part, yeah, they'd tell me what to do unless I was, you know, feeling brave on a particular day. <laughs> okay. We should also mention, because we haven't done that yet, you say a local paper, and it was a local paper in the biggest city that's in our country. You're talking about this happening in New York City. Yeah, this is in New York. I don't want to name the paper. Yeah, of I course. Not, there's like, there's got to be some sort of, like, statute of limitations here <laughs> for me. But, uh, yeah, that's what I was doing. Mean, you could easily – I'm pretty sure you can probably Google it and mm-hmm. maybe find some stuff out there still. I think mm-hmm. there's still an archive somewhere with a few of the things I wrote because uh, I think by the end of it, it may have been, like, 30 or 40 that mm-hmm. I did. Um, I don't know if it was more than that. But, yeah, no, it was New York. Yeah. Uh, but my, my turf was Queens, so I specialized in, in Queens. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's known for being like the one of the more, most densely populated parts mm-hmm. of New York City. Um, and I think it still retains the title as being the most diverse in terms of ethnicities that live in New York City. So that was one of the fun things about this, too, is, you know, again, I want to try all these different things. And now I have an opportunity to do that, get paid while doing it, get the free meals uh, and just like really experiment and uh, expand my palate. Just try you know, whatever I could try, which would be oftentimes a lot of things I wasn't familiar with. Sometimes there were things I thought I hated and it turned out I actually liked them. Um, so yeah, it got to, as you say, fortune favors the bold and uh, it really favored my palate in this case. Uh, What was something you walked in thinking to yourself, I'm going to just not like this, but it ended up flipping your opinion of it. Well, generally I do not like tuna. I'm not, uh, at that point in time, I wasn't really a big fish eater for whatever reason. I just wasn't into it. Uh, and I think it was probably the first assignment that they gave me that I had to go to this place. Oh, And uh, the first, and they bring out appetizers, and the appetizer is tuna tartare. So again, like keep in mind, I don't really, really even eat sushi, and I still mm-hmm. don't really eat sushi. It just doesn't appeal to me. There's plenty of other Japanese things I'd rather eat besides that. Um, but you know, this is me who doesn't really eat fish, and my first day on the job, and I'm given a plate <laughs> of raw, red, stinky fish, which oh. was actually pretty decent. It was actually pretty good. It was like, uh, it was a tuna tartare rolled in sesame seeds. It had okay. like some kind of seaweed garnish and uh-huh. some sort of uh, I think it was probably something like a mango some kind of tropical fruit chutney mm-hmm. so uh, it was actually pretty nice uh, i enjoyed it i guess i wouldn't eat it again i wouldn't have ever ordered it again but it right. was nice trying it once and just yeah. saying i had it and now my mouth knows what it feels like and tastes like and i know what it smells like and i know that i don't necessarily hate this i'm gonna have to share this with my children after we're done that hey look you can try something you think you don't like and you might just like it or at least not hate it so if nothing else you've given me something here to share with a little picky eater that I have at my house. So thank you for that. I mean, it's like the worst ever Aesop's fable, but I hope it helps. (laughs) And then the donkey found the food he didn't dislike, but still won't ever touch again. I think you might've found your newest podcast, Matthew. I think you found it. The world's worst fables. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm curious. So you're out, you're in Queens, you're going to all these restaurants. Most of them, they know you're coming. What was what was that like? You said that that could be a little unusual because they do know you're coming. Are they preparing special dishes because you don't necessarily want to review something that's not on the menu, but are they? how are they treating you? What's that whole experience like going in as at least a critic that they know is coming? Well, the biggest part of that is that you kind of still need to disarm them because, mm-hmm. yeah, they have expectations and they have their own plans, but at the end of the day, I have my own plans too. And so, you know, ultimately how I kind of ended up doing the reviews was I initially had like, I think it was a 600-word limit, and I was able to eventually get it stretched to like a 1,000 in some cases because I wanted more time. And a lot of those reviews would be that I would then spend time actually talking to the owners and the chefs, and that was part of the review. So for me, it wasn't just talking about like, you know, here's five dishes I ordered that they're comping for me. It was more like, here is the story of this place. Here's Mm. why they matter. Here's why they are important to their neighborhood or they're important to whatever nationality or ethnicity their food represents. Uh, so it would be, you know, either a history lesson on, on the cuisine. Mm-hmm. It could be just getting to know the owners of this place and getting to know why they do what they do, what their story is, mm. uh, and, and kind of like telling the story of their lives through the food. So okay. to do that, you know, you kind of have to disarm them. Mm-hmm. I guess that's, you know, I already said that word, but I'm going to use it again. Cause I think yeah. it's probably the right word here. It's like they come in prepared to do something right. and they're putting on basically a very much, you know, I don't want to say fake or they're not being authentic, but that's kind of what it is. They're kind of trying to hide who they are because they need to be professional. They need to present themselves in a certain way. And uh, I need to get to the root of things. So, you know, some places put on airs. Other places were a lot homier and like they basically would sit down with you and you'd eat with them. And I was fine with that, you know, and not that they were doing that. Like, you know, uh, they were like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and eat with you. It was usually like, you know, I'd be like, hey, come literally break bread with me because mm-hmm. you just baked this bread. So tell me about it. Like, you know, is this your grandma's recipe, whatever it is? Um, so you got to, you know, it's kind of like, a, I guess you could say cutting my teeth with the interviews at that point. Right, right. <laughs> and that's kind of what it would be. It was just, you know, getting to know them and breaking the kind of barrier between the kitchen and the clients. Well, I love that. I love that because we talk in what we do in my business about storytelling and how important it is. And we just, we hear it from everybody that we talk to that when you can connect a person to something through a story, when you can make it come alive to them, that's when it matters. And that's when they remember it. And that's really where it can have meaning that can carry on with them from that moment on. I think the flavor of food is nowhere near as important as the history of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, You know, I'm going to have to be careful. I've already had one podcast host try to take over this show, and I don't <laughs> want you to be the second one. So we're going to have to be very careful moving forward now. Too late. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, oh he, he, annex this podcast. he's done it to me again. Oh, no. <laughs> we're talking all about Trek food for the next five episodes. Then you can have the show back for a little okay. while. Okay. Well, that sounds fair. I mean, I'm not going to argue talking about Star Trek food. I always, I'll segue quickly before we continue on about you. I tell anyone who will listen that the glasses or goblets that they drink Klingon blood wine out of in some of the DS9 episodes are just baker's pitchers bought straight from a bakery supply store. And I will show people, I'll be in my lab and somebody will say something to me about Deep Space Nine. And I'll just pick, I'll be like, this is it, you realize. Like, this is what they drink blood wine out of. (laughs) And then I'll just move on with my day. Yeah, that's pretty much what half their stuff is anyway. It's all stuff that pre-existed. And when yeah. it comes to, like, you know, things in the bar, there's... Uh, you can look on eBay, and you could find, mm-hmm. like, Picard's teacups, or you could find yeah, yeah. Uh, 
companies still make like the Ractagino mugs from Deep Space Nine. You could order them for like twenty bucks, I think it is. And not, none of the stuff is is like that expensive, really. I mean, no, it's, it's easily out there, and so much was just repurposed. It just happened to look futurist enough yeah. that they could put on air and get away with it. Exactly, it looks like a space mug. Exactly, got to have that space mug, you know, to drink your Ractagino out of. Or basically just like any shape that doesn't look like conventional. It's kind of what you have to do. It's like yeah, yeah. You know, if you're drinking from a cup in Star Trek, it's not going to be a cylinder. It's mm-hmm. going to be like a cylinder with all sorts of weird polygons jutting out of it. So as long as you, you know, if, if you're someone out there who's in the uh, the, the dinnerware world, uh, you know, <laughs> you want to appeal to the Star Trek fans, just get yourself like a square, uh, put a triangle somewhere in the sides and call yeah. it a cup and say it was used on like Enterprise and you're going to make a lot of money. Uh, okay, now I have to. You're going to get me going before we get back to being a food critic. What is up with the salt and pepper shakers on Enterprise? <laughs> what is going? How are they working? They are the most impractical. I don't know if you remember how they work. They're these swinging salt and pepper shakers, and I just it it would get everywhere. You have no control at that point as to where <laughs> this salt and pepper is going. I'm so glad you brought up Enterprise because, like, in my opinion, Enterprise had the best food ever on the shows. Yeah, um, yeah, that would be yeah. And that, and, that, and that food was, I believe, was made by Dorothy Drexler. Uh, I think she was, or Dorothy, yeah, I think it was Dorothy, or Dorothy Duter. I, I forget her name. I'm, I feel bad. I can't remember right now, but. I can't um, either. Yeah. Uh, so she she was responsible for making the food. I apologize for not getting her name right. <laughs> um, but I think that's also why the, the, you know, the salt pepper shakers were so terrible is because like her food was so good uh, uh, uh. that you didn't need it. <laughs> So like like there's outtakes you can find online, uh, I think, of like the, Dominic Keating like trying to get through a scene and he's eating food, uh, and he's like, I, I can't remember my lines. The food's too good, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would happen so much because like it was just, you know, it wasn't like it was sitting around on a set for you know hours right. at a time. It was like you know they were making them fresh food, and since Enterprise takes place closer to you know our current mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. times, uh, the food isn't like you know crazy cubes yeah. of plastic like it was in the original series. Uh, it's like you know actual general stuff that we see normally so you know she got to make real food and it was apparently real damn good <laughs> yeah i i just know what i want is a, a riker made pie that's what i'll go for from enterprise <laughs> oh yeah with uh, the yeah. rabbit unicorn whatever it was that he puts in it which has got to taste so gamey what, yeah oh, taste good. I, I i i don't know i don't know what he was thinking at least he wasn't making eggs because everybody knows how riker's eggs end up anyone who's seen next gen they know I mean, if you're getting eggs from Riker, I want to know what you did the night before. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, to segue back to being a food critic, <laughs> I'm curious how you might have gone about this situation. So the restaurant, they've paid the paper. You're going in. They know you're coming. Did you ever have a situation where they just were not good? I mean, this place was not good. Did you, did you ever run into that? And if you did, how did you handle it? Oh, my favorite question is... <laughs> Oh boy. I mean, for the most part, I was lucky that like every place I went to actually was good. It was just kind of like a scale of how good they were mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know, because some places were like, you know, kind of place you could bring your kids to. So obviously I can't grade it on the same place. I'm going to grade, you know, like a Michelin star restaurant, obviously, which I never went to for this newspaper. <laughs> but, okay. Um, you know, you can't really grade it on the same scale. So it's kind of a general thing you have to deal with. Um, for the most part, I was pretty lucky. There were definitely a few times where I had bad ones. Honestly, my trick to get through those was taking a page out of the really bad food writers who came before me at this newspaper. Ah, okay. <laughs> and uh, basically, if you saw any of my reviews and I spend more time listing the ingredients than I do actually talking about whether it was good or not, mm-hmm. uh, that was how I got through that and hit my 600-word limit. Okay. 
All That's right. That's the sneaky trick I had to do. I mean, other times, I mean, I have horror stories if you want to hear horror stories. There were a few. But for the most part, I kind of just had to, like, fake my way through it mm-hmm. and just find as much fluff to not talk about the food, basically. Or talk about it okay. very little. Or also, in those cases, try and get more photos in there because hopefully right. their food at least looked good. Right. Yeah. It's all about that storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. So Tell that story and uh, if you need to, use an ingredient declaration. All right. But no, you said horror stories. I need to hear at least one. I got to hear one horror story. I mean, I think the worst one I have is pretty damn bad. So we went to a place that uh, I was excited to go to. I brought two friends with me because uh, I usually, you know, I usually, I didn't always do this alone. I usually would bring people with okay. me, two to three, um, because that's the other thing. Another important thing, I don't know if I'm going to get to this being a critic, is like, you know, you're expected to eat. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, so I don't want to eat everything on my own either. And if you bring more people, it also means usually they'll bring you more foods mm-hmm. to try. So that's why I would do that too. Uh, it's all strategy on how to get more things for free. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as far as like bad places went, the worst one I had was we got to a place, they sat us down like right in the front of the restaurant. Cause I guess it was quiet. They were like, Oh, we got to show there's people here, whatever. So they, you know, put down the tablecloth, all the glassware and all that stuff. And then they bring out a little like thing of fresh warm pita and they put it down on the table and all of a sudden, I see like a little bug coming out of it, oh, crawling no. across the table. Oh, no. And then I see another one oh, and another no. one. And then there's basically just, they're swarming out from this thing of pita. And oh, no. uh, they're baby roaches. Oh, no. So I, I, oh, no. I basically motion to the waiter and I'm like, hey, uh, help, please help. Thank you. Flamethrower. Thank you. Uh, and so they basically, like, the owner comes over, grabs the tablecloth from like each side and in one felled swoop. Uh, just takes the entire thing off the table with the pita still in it and just takes the whole thing, runs off to never be seen again. I, I assume you like put the thing in the furnace or something. Um, and then eventually we were brought out, you know, a new tablecloth and, and all new stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we're sorry about that. That was from the old owner. Uh, you know, we're, we're just making changes here. That's from the old owner. So it's their fault. Oh, the old. OK. All right. They right. must have just gone out the back door, I guess, as you were coming in the front door. It's basically some kind of like Phantom of the Opera stuff. They were just yeah. there to sabotage the place. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I hate when the old owners do that. Right, right. They're just hanging around in the rafters for no reason. <laughs> that was definitely the worst experience I ever had yeah. as far as that goes. And I'll never forget that because it was so traumatizing. Uh, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I mean, you know, and what were they doing? I mean, where was the pita? As, as a pastry chef and a baker, I immediately start thinking, where did they have that pita that the roaches even got into it? And how long <laughs> was it there? Because my mind immediately says, well, they are not following proper food storage. Yeah. I have a theory about this. Oh, I okay. Think, I want to hear. I, I think it's that Mama and Papa Roach lay their baby eggs mm. inside, like the dough, perhaps, or in the thing, whatever. And as the bed, as the bread baked, maybe they just, you know, it was warm enough to help hatch them. And then when we were served the reheated bread, and then poof, they're like, ah, we're free. Welcome <laughs> to the world. And they were just saying <laughs> hi to us. So I, I think they may have just attached themselves to me, like I was now their mom. <laughs> perhaps I'm not sure if that's how that works, with Roaches, but that's that's my theory. Well, I I think we can probably safely say it's true. I mean, nobody will fact check us. That'll be fine. Yeah, I'm fine with that. It's yeah, a I'm, food podcast. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, we're not talking about the science of the bread baking. We're talking about roaches. So we can yes. be marginally correct on that one. Wow. But Fahrenheit is the ideal temperature for breeding roaches and bread. That's what I want to find oh. out. These are, the, these are the tough questions. Those are. Oh, wow. We have to work on that. I mean, they do say that cockroaches can survive quite a bit. I don't know how, how hot, though, you could get a cockroach. Now we're going to have to find the answer, and I'm going to have to get back to you with that one. And at what point can you bake them to the point that they're actually delicious is yes. my, my big question. Well, that's actually interesting. So even now, I mean, you know, you're aware there's a ton of cultures that eat insects. We've tried for years at some of our special events that we have for our customers, generally always with chocolate, 
to serve them insects. And still in the U.S., there's a real barrier to entry for the idea of people eating insects. Like people Mm, still see it as something that you just don't do. And a lot of people will do it a lot of times because these are big events. There's peer pressure. They, you know, they go, okay, you know, so-and-so just did it. Okay, I'll eat it. But they always do it. They, it. It's one of two things. They either make a big deal out of it. Like, look at me. I just, you know, ate this insect. Or they do it very, very quickly and they go, oh, oh, I just, I just ate an insect. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few times where I have uh, ingested various insects. Uh, and for the most part, it's been whatever. I mean... I remember not that long ago, but it was long enough that it was before the pandemic, obviously, that I went to like a, uh, I think it was like some kind of a food convention. And there was a few places that were doing like the renewable foods. Mm-hmm. And so that meant like, you know, roach or not, well, not what there's never roach, obviously, uh, but it was yeah. like, you know, crickets. grasshopper or crickets. Yeah, crickets, those yeah, are the big ones. Worms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they were either baked into whatever the heck it was. And, you know, at that point when they're just powder, it tastes like whatever. It doesn't make a difference yeah. really. Um, you know, like protein powder tastes worse than cricket powder. Mm hmm. I went to uh, a taco place in D.C., which was owned by Jose Andres. It wasn't just a taco place. It's just like, you know, a, a Spanish cuisine place. And they mm-hmm. have all sorts of different tacos. And um, they had like the cricket one on the menu. So I was like, I got to give this a try. I mean, I'm never going to have it again made by someone this amazing. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I did that. And same kind of thing. Like they were, they were very crunchy, but for the most part, uh, fairly flavorless because it's not like shells really absorb yeah. uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Really, I mean, it's like, you know, if you ate a shrimp shell, you know what it's like practically. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a lot smaller. Um, they, they were just kind of very crunchy. They popped a little bit when you had them, but the more you eat it, the more you get used to it. So wasn't too terrible. Would I do it again? Not necessarily, hmm. but uh, I got through it. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, it's weird, I guess, if you look at it. I think it's part of the problem, too, is like if you present it like this is filled with cricket powder dust, mm-hmm. uh, then it, it's kind of off-putting, I guess. Yeah. If you see it, of course, it's also off-putting, but I don't really know what's worse. If it's worse, like actually seeing it and knowing that you have it or pretending it's not there. You know, like that's kind of that's kind of the dilemma I think you you probably face, especially in your test kitchens. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's interesting. We get a lot of requests for added protein, and we still we shy away from using insect powders. We have a few times more to show what's possible with them, but it's just like you're saying. Once you say it's in there, especially when you're trying to market something to the whole of the country, and you want the lowest common denominator to to want to eat this food. Any of those insect powders, it's still a no-go. Nobody's It's kind of like the same issue with Ophel, though, I feel like, because mm. uh, I think there's kind of been a revolution in that in the last, like, 20-ish mm-hmm. years, maybe. I think, And I think I owe a lot of that to, like, in my opinion, to Food Network for showing more of it and showing how to mm-hmm. prepare more of it and do mm-hmm. things with it. Um, and I got Ophel stories, too. But, uh, you know, I think it's kind of like the same thing, dealing with preparing it and how do you yeah. make these things that are pretty gross inherently, how do you make them suddenly appealing to yeah. the average person? All right, well, you're just teeing me up here. <laughs> what's what's your uh, is it an awful awful story or is it a positive awful story no it, it was a life-changing awful story i mean i've i've i, I gotta got to try it. a lot of weird things again doing this so i mean i went to a tibetan place and had my very first blood sausage among other oh. odd sausages and that was cool um yeah, i've been to a few other places as well that had things like that i mean there's obviously tripe is whatever um i've had that a few times from latin places mm-hmm. also and usually i would ask for that because if you're doing it for like a review they're not going to bring you that they're going to bring you you know what's, what's good for the white person palate which yeah, is yeah. not like the awesome stuff so <laughs> uh, you kind of have to go out of your way to ask for like you know hey i want to try the scary thing that uh, i don't know how to pronounce so mm-hmm. please bring me that in terms of like the i guess the weirdest i had and i don't remember if i did a review of it or not for the newspaper because i think i did but i wasn't assigned to go to this place mm-hmm I just did it and I gave him the bill. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Uh, so, uh, and I, I think the place was called uh, the Kebab Cafe and that's in Astoria. And I'm pretty sure it's still in Astoria. Okay. And it was an Egyptian restaurant. And 
in particular, like this place was known for a few things. And the first one being that this guy kind of brought Egyptian food into that neighborhood. I mean, that area, at least that block has now kind of become like the little Egypt of mm-hmm. Queens in a lot of ways. Um, so that was like kind of a big deal. And it was also the fact that like it was it, he, he was a very interesting dude because, yeah, he had a menu, but the menu kind of changed whatever he felt like giving you. Like that was kind of mm-hmm. one of the gimmicks of the place was like, you know, what he thinks you want, you're going to eat. That's what he's going to give you. He will decide mm-hmm. what you're basically eating. You don't really have much of a say in it. And uh, you're not going to get the prices either until the check is there. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is also pretty off putting, but you got to have faith in the guy. And, uh, you know, you talk about food being stories. I mean, this guy was like super entertaining, but not, you know, we're not talking like uh, a Benihana entertaining. I mean, right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. He's who he is. Yes. Uh, it's not like he's putting on a show for you. He's talking yeah. to you and he's telling you stories or whatever. He wants to get to know you to know what you're, what you might want to eat or what you might want to try to mm-hmm. attempt eating. Um, so he's just being himself, and that's that's pretty endearing. And uh, so the food on the menu that day was testicles. Okay. That was one of the things. And uh, I I think we might have had brains that day too. Hmm. I don't quite remember if we did or didn't, but testicles were definitely the thing I remember because you never forget your first time putting a testicle <laughs> in your mouth, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure they were lamb testicles. So Okay. Yeah, so he prepared them, and uh, they were really good, and I hate that I, I liked them that much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think part of that was the fact that, like, the sauce he put them in was so good because that's, I think, you know, you know this better. Oh, yeah. Because the way to, like, really deal with offal is you got to kind of cook the offal out of offal. yeah. And uh, that's what you have to do. Like, you know, you have to simmer it slowly or whatever to get whatever stench or stank there might be in and out of it. And I, I couldn't tell you what the sauce was, mm-hmm. you know, but I remember it very distinctly because I never had anything like it before. And it was just hmm. like this velvety kind of flavor and texture that was in my mouth. And, you know, the, the texture of testicles is not exactly the most good. Yeah. <laughs> for, for lack of a more intelligent word, yeah. they're, they're not great. <laughs> it's, it's no. Um, but these were like, they were, they were nice. They were like diced up pretty small also. Mm-hmm. So that made it a little bit easier to manage it if it's your first time doing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like it's Rocky Mountain oysters. It, it's a very right. different kind of preparation. Yeah. And I, I really liked it. And, um, yeah, that's why I can't remember if I actually wrote about it or not. Cause I feel like if I did, they wouldn't have let me publish that word in a paper. Interesting. So, <laughs> but I remember writing about it in my own little, you know, I would kind of like do my own actual honest recaps after I wrote okay. some of these papers. Um, which if I find I'll have to try and send them to you, but oh, wow. I don't know if, if I have those anymore, but, um, yeah, like that was one of those places that was just like so different and, uh, really kind of changed my perspective on certain things I ate or never had ate before. Yeah. I just have to ask, was this fellow's name Zabral by chance? I couldn't remember. Okay. Uh, that's an enterprise deep cut for anybody who's in the know. <laughs> too deep. <laughs> too deep. That actually wasn't as bad as I thought it might've been. I, I really thought you were going to go with not liking the awful you are offered. So I'm glad it wasn't that awful. That experience aside, just truly the most enjoyable meal, if you can remember, or something that still sticks with you as being just amazingly delicious that you'd actually go back for. There were a bunch of places I did actually continue to go to. Uh, and like some of them even have like some kind of a relationship with the owners. Like they still see me, you know, this oh, is nice. many years later and they still remember me because uh, you know, they still have like the review, like they love the review that much. I mean, um, for, for anybody out there who is a pizza head, pizza lovers out there mm-hmm. will probably know Grimaldi's pizza. And uh, they have a few in New York city, but they're like a very famous pizzeria in New York. And they opened one up um, in, in basically, I guess you could say within my jurisdiction. Okay. <laughs> so, so I got to go to like, not, not the main original Grimaldi's, mm-hmm. but they had another one and I got to go visit them. And like, they liked the review enough that they actually like, not, not only did, was it like, uh, I, I guess not, not, the word's not plaster, but like, you know, they, they basically made a plaque out of it. They literally right. made a plaque out of this review and it was like oh, sitting wow. in the back of the restaurant. I think it's still there to the day. Nice. Um, so stuff like that is just like, what's, what was really cool about it. 
and made it memorable also because I'm like, wow, here's this place that has food that I really like and that I like coming to. And now I can just walk to the back and there's like my name. And I, I feel like I'm a part of that place to history now, too. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of what it was, was I think for me, it was kind of like finding out the history of a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. And that's what made it very enjoyable for me to be able to connect the food to the person behind the food. Uh, and also connecting now, I guess, the audience that's looking at this stuff to that same story and to mm-hmm. my experience that mm-hmm. then, in theory, will broaden their experience, too. So, I mean, I can remember there was, like, a really great Italian place. I was in the middle of, I think, Long Island City somewhere that I would never have gone to otherwise. But, like, hearing the story about, like, the family history of this place and just all of the story behind it uh, and how good the food was, too. Like, you know, that was one of those places where the owner, like, really sat down with us, came to the table, and just, we talked um, we had like all sorts of amazing food and then he brought us even more food. Cause he was like, Oh, I gotta have, you gotta have this thing. I try this thing here. Like we don't normally get this out, but you gotta have it. Um, so there was like a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there was, there's a lot of really good experiences, honestly, like the good far outweighs the bad. And like, that's good. It was always surprising where you go to a place and you don't know what to expect. Yeah. Uh, and you then, you're then just like completely blown away. Like I, I can remember going to some like real hole in the wall pizzeria that just looked like your average neighborhood pizzeria, and that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And it had uh, the best pinella vodka I ever had. Okay. And like it had no right to have that good of a pinella vodka from yeah. the way this place looked on the outside, but it was like you know to this day one of those things that you're never gonna forget, and you're then gonna make the golden standard anytime you ever have a vodka sauce again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there was a lot of those, uh, and and they're all you know. If I can't necessarily remember the name of the places, I still remember the food. I still have the memory. You know, I still have the tactile sensation. I still remember the taste and the smell of it. Uh, and those are things that are, are going to be, you know, with me pretty much forever. I think that's great. I, I, I really love, A, just how you got yourself into it. it. That cracks me up. It really does. It puts a smile on my face because as somebody who works in food, I have to tell you, some people take it way too serious. They really do. You read some critics or you look at how some people talk about food and you say, all right, you know what? It's just a pickle there, buddy. Okay? It's, it's, it's just a pickle. You know, calm down. And I love that you were able to talk your way into it. And even if these places were paying for the review, you were able to be honest. You followed a great rule. You know, if you didn't have anything nice to say, you made up, you know, you put a great story in the paper, if nothing else, which was is great. And you connected people, like you said, you connected people to the people behind the food, to the stories, to the cultures that they're bringing to these restaurants. That's, that's really, that's really great. This is, this has been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying this. Oh yeah, same here. I mean, it's, it's always good times talking about food. <laughs> you can't ever go wrong with that, right? I mean, it is. you find someone who hates talking about food and uh, you're going to find a person who has no taste buds, I would assume. I, I don't really know what you'd find. You'd probably find a rock. A rock. A solid rock. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's funny. I lived with somebody in college who didn't have a sense of taste. And he still, though, loved to sit down to eat, would always sit down to dinner with us, and would talk about food. And he couldn't really taste it. Wow. Well, that's what, you know, we're saying with the history and the experience. That's what it's really more about. I mean, you're going to probably remember that just as much, too, in these cases. You know, like... You're going to always remember like that one really great Thanksgiving dinner where you'll, mm-hmm. you'll say the food was good, but I mean, there's going to be other things you remember from it too. You're going to yeah. probably remember, you know, hanging out with your relative or something or playing around with your cousins, that kind of thing. Like you're going to remember the stories probably around it uh, in probably a stronger way. Yes. And you're going to have the same memories of the food because food will always be changing and food mm-hmm. is going to be in, your, in and out of your mouth every three hours, basically, that you're awake. So, uh, you know, it's never going to be the same experience, but you're going to always have that one memory locked into it. And that's what's going to make those things, those times so great. Definitely. I really, I could not agree with you more on that one. This has really been quite a good time. I truly appreciate 
Matthew, that you came on and you volunteered yourself. You just said, hey, I used to be a food critic and I'll spend some time with you. And since you talk about Star Trek, I, of course, jumped at it since, hey, this is my excuse to talk to people who like to talk about Star Trek. I, though, would be remiss if I didn't let you go before asking you some of my wrap-up questions. Okay. I hope you've prepared yourself. (laughs) Set phasers on stun. Set. Oh, you're being kind. Thank you. All right. You have a food replicator. I'm going to work under the assumption that food replicators replicate food that is perfectly nutritious, regardless of what that food is. What's the food that you're going to replicate and eat all the time? Now, is this a Star Trek specific food or just anything out there? You can give me one or both answers. We can go for anything at all and then a Star Trek specific food. It's your choice. Hmm. Okay. I mean, let's see. I think the one thing I could probably eat endlessly, I mean, that's tough because there's a lot of things I could eat endlessly. <laughs> so uh, that's very tough. I mean, it's more of a matter. I mean, I guess if, if it's replicated, it probably won't hurt me in the same way because I have all sorts of stomach issues mm-hmm. nowadays uh, that I didn't have when I was first reviewing these yeah. things. That's what we're assuming. Uh, we're assuming that it is perfectly nutritious and harmless. Well, in that case, I just want some hot garbage. Um, okay. Like, I'm going to want me some some really good chicken parm. Okay. Uh, yeah, because uh, that's something I don't really get to eat as much. And if, if I can find a replicated way to eat it that doesn't cause me much harm and doesn't, you know, cause all the cholesterol to rise in my body, then mm-hmm. uh, let's get me a good chicken parm or uh, I'll even take uh, a nice uh, nice seafood Italian pasta. I'm, I'm a big pasta dude and a big okay. pizza guy. I mean, like, you know, if I was to eat getting pizza, I'd be like, you know, it's and that's going to be a, a debate for another day of who makes the best pizza. And I don't know if it's necessarily in New York anymore. Oh, uh, really? Horrible sin. Ooh. But um, yeah, shots fired. But uh, I think it would probably end up being something Italian. OK. And as far as from, like the world of Star Trek would go, uh, there is like a, a food I always remember very vividly, because for the most part in Star Trek, I mean, like I was saying earlier, if you're watching the original series, it's like literally cubes of green and colored mm-hmm. PVC. It's not actual. It's rarely actual yeah, yeah. food. But I can always remember very vividly on this episode from Star Trek Next Generation. It's a Q episode, and it's the episode where Q becomes... I'm pretty sure it's the one where Q becomes human. Okay, uh, or yeah. I might be conflating it with the episode from Season 2, uh, The Dauphine, mm-hmm. with Wesley, and he falls in love with the girl, yes. and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have actually been that one, but it's hard to say because they both involve the same thing. That's like big bowls of chocolate ice cream. Mm-hmm. And it always looked so appealing mm. on Star Trek for whatever reason. And it must have been they had like a really great food stylist because mm-hmm. there's no way it was real ice cream. It would yeah. have melted instantly on that set. Yeah. So whatever whatever food magic they did, like uh, if I was going to get anything Star Trek food, I mean, Riker's pizza from Picard mm-hmm. is tempting. Oh, that's um, a good but, one. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, but, but, but that chocolate ice cream, even though it's just ice cream, something yeah. about it always just looked so good. And like it felt like it would feel good to eat also because, I mean, Counselor Troy is digging this oh, thing yeah. up. and. Yeah, and if teenage people in the Enterprise like it too, I mean, how can you go wrong? How can you go wrong? Trust the teens. I'll let you in on a little secret. Oftentimes, do you know what ice cream is, at least in photo shoots? I do not. It's mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes. Oftentimes, wow. it's it's starchy. Yep. It, that it's makes sense. not necessarily the way you would eat mashed potatoes, the same recipe, but that's the idea. Something very starchy that you can f- color and form that will hold that shape but not melt under the lights. Well, that's perfect for me because I'm lactose intolerant, so I wouldn't mind some chocolate mashed potatoes. Okay, that's fantastic. You know what? I'm going to find somebody else to make those for you. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I would I would do a great job. Who is the captain that you would want to serve under if you had to in the Star Trek universe? Uh, yes, this is a question I've spent many days and weeks <laughs> pondering. I even made a list because at some point I I plan on doing a whole video about like, you know, what's my crew aboard my own ship and what what all that stuff is. And uh, uh, Captain is a tough one because I kind of have to go through it. 
Uh, you know, because it's also like, you know, do I necessarily want to be captained under a person who I like or do I mm. want to be captained by someone who I really respect and who will get the most out of me? Mm. Yeah, and, and that's where it kind of gets kind of gets weird because, like, I mean, my favorite Starfleet captain is probably Cisco. Okay. But would I actually want to be working for Cisco? It's tough to say because mm. he's a tough guy to please, too. He, he's going to yeah. really get the most out of you. Like, he's going to really drag things out of you. But he's going to do it in a kind of a difficult way, and that might be tough to handle. Yeah. So somebody like Picard, same thing. Like, he's also a little bit terse at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, would I want it to be under Janeway? Janeway's may, uh, maybe. Um, and I, but really, I, I know it's a little early to say, but I'm very much liking Pike in the current Star Trek series, Anson Mountain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm liking what he's doing, and I'm liking where this character is going mm-hmm. and what he's been saying and how he treats his crew. So I would not mind serving uh, under Pike and aboard his Enterprise. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good. I think it's an unexpected one because even I'm an ex- I, I, you know I can't believe I'm saying that too, yeah. but uh, I very much believe that uh, you know I, I I like to serve under him because everybody seems really happy working under him. And he's a dude that can keep cool under pressure, mm-hmm. and we've seen him yeah. do that. Um, I think he has a lot to offer, and I could definitely learn a lot from the man. Yeah. Oh, those are all great reasons, and I like that one. I also am really liking Anson Mount's characterization of Pike and the writing for Pike. Pike is a character who really yeah. hasn't had much time being explored. I mean, no. in the movies we got seen played by Bruce Greenwood. Exactly, we got yeah. the original one played by Jeffrey Hunter, yeah. but really they're basically fleeting. I mean, this yeah. is the first time we've really seen who Pike is in a canonical way, uh, or at least in this new modern way, and it's working for me. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I'll beam on board. Nice. I love it. All right, we're going to wrap up with this because you brought this up. You said the best pizza might not be in New York. We don't need to take a long time, but explain yourself. <laughs> All right. Well, uh... I mean, so I, I am a New York pizza guy, which yeah. means you got to have your nice thin crust pizza. You yeah. got to fold it. Uh, like, I, I love artichoke pizza. So if you okay. go to New York, you got to go to artichoke. Or if you want to go classic, uh, you can go to Patsy's or, like I said earlier, Grimaldi's. Mm-hmm. That's if you want your real nice thin crust. Um, but a few years back, uh, so I, I, I also I do a lot of things. And I'm also a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I had a documentary that was out in a film festival in Connecticut. So we were going out there, and I kept seeing signs of the road up there for, like, you know, the, the best pizza in the country or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And uh, that was that would be in New Haven, Connecticut. Yep. A lot of people say New Haven. Yep. New Haven was where it at. So we went into this place in New Haven. I got myself, uh, I think it was probably a classic pepperoni and sausage because you got to try the pepperoni and sausage. That's mm-hmm. how you know if a place is legit, uh, especially if they make their own sausage. Uh, so I tried a place there. They also weren't like known for their white pie. So I had to get a white pizza, Pizza Bianca. And uh, oh man, like that was, I, I feel so bad saying that might be a place that has better pizza mm-hmm. than New York, but New Haven <laughs> is is giving it a run for its money. And if you don't believe me, I mean, you need to just put your biases aside, as Captain Kirk would say, mm-hmm. leave your biases in your quarters and uh, head over to Connecticut and get some really, really good pizza that is, oh man, it's like, it is the ideal New York slice that's made in Connecticut. All right. Awesome. I'll throw in there, if you are ever in the Philly area, I'll say I've been to New Haven to a couple of those pizza places. We had a couple places in Philly that are, uh, I think give them a run for their money. And uh, Peter Reinhardt, renowned pizza expert, happens to agree with us, friend of friend of the show. So I'm gonna, if you ever head to Philly, I'll give you some recommendations. Oh, I plan on doing that at some point. I mean, I still haven't had a proper Philly cheesesteak, if you can believe it. Oh. I've had like, I've had all sorts of like signature things in other places. I had I had Kobe steak in Japan. Mm-hmm. I've I've had like all sorts of things, um, but the, I've only been in, like Philly maybe two or three times. Okay, and. Uh, one time it was way too late at night, I think, or we were too far away from the place. The other time uh, I was with a friend who I was like, I got to get a cheesesteak. And instead he brought me to some like, local dumpy pizzeria like 20 miles away. And he's like, oh, yeah, order oh, there. Oh, no. So I, I don't I don't know what the fight is between Pat's and Gino's. I want to see the, the Rocky gym across the street. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so I'm like missing out on all these experiences that I got to have. And that's, uh, yeah. 
that's for the next uh, the next blog or maybe reviving my other food blogs. I did make one of those also after my my time as a critic. I made my own thing too. Oh wow, wow. The story continues. The story continues. <laughs> it always does because, like you said, it's all about storytelling. Well, wow. Matthew, this has been these have been great stories. I really appreciate your time. And we said a little bit at the top, but where can people find you? Because you have great stories that you share. Where can they go for those stories? Well, if anybody wants to check out my podcast, Trek Untold, whether you're a Trekkie or not, because even if you're not, you'll probably still find a lot of things you're going to want to hear about. You know, as I tell a lot of the guests when I try to book them on the show, you know, we'll maybe spend like a third or even a quarter of the show talking about Trek if it's that much. Uh, we talk about a lot of other things, too. So mm-hmm. if you want to give it a try and see if it's up your alley, uh, you can find us on pretty much any major platform that you listen to podcasts. If it's iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Whatever it is, Stitcher, I'm probably there. Uh, and if you want to follow me on social media, you can check us out at Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, if you don't like listening to podcasts as much and you maybe are into video, we also do the video version of this, which is every Sunday on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Matthew, I'm definitely checking it out. I mean, I find you, I'll say I'll find you on Stitcher, so I know you're on Stitcher. Thank you so much. I people are listening now. I've always wondered where people find me and how they find me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for the time today. We truly appreciate it. This has been a blast. You take care uh, and live long and prosper. Thank you so much for having me, Braden. Appreciate it. And uh, fortune favors the bold. Saying it again. <laughs> oh, he's trying to take over. He's trying to take over. Uh, shields up. Shields up. Abort. Abort. <laughs> Many thanks again to Matthew for coming on. It was really enlightening hearing about how it works at some of these smaller newspapers in terms of being a food critic and that this is actually something customers can pay for of the newspaper as an advertisement. I really never knew that in the part of the food industry that we work in. This is just, it's foreign to us. It's something we don't really get to touch. So it's really interesting for me to get to hear these stories and hear about all of the really interesting restaurants that Matthew got to go into as part of his job. I will say, I did a little fact-checking after we had this conversation, and I am happy but also somewhat disappointed to have to share with you. Matthew's theory on those cockroach eggs doesn't actually hold up, so high heat will kill those cockroach eggs, so they were not able to stay in the bread and then come out after the baking process. It would have killed them dead which really actually makes me kind of worry more about where that bread was that he was served because oof I just I don't want to think too much about that really we're just going to we're just going to move on past that the fun part though that I have to share is the restaurant Matthew talked about that had the gentleman with the uh, Egyptian cuisine seems to still exist I looked it up I searched for it just the way he described and it was right there and I absolutely already never having met this man or been in his restaurant I love this guy. You look at his menu, and it says, basically, menu changes daily. Here's an idea of some of our most popular dishes. And it's just about four dishes written out on just a blank white background on the internet. You can tell this man just is about the food. He wants to cook. He wants to cook something new and interesting every day, and you're going to like it. Just as we liked talking with Matthew. So again, you can check him out. Go and hear Trek Untold, wherever you find shows. He does talk a little bit sometimes about food, mostly about Star Trek and other interesting topics in the entertainment and creative industry. We really enjoyed the learning about what it can take to be a food critic and how all of us can make positive changes because, well, here you go. Fortune favors the bold. I'm going to steal that, so you better look out, Matthew. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. 
Take care, stay well, and we will be seeing you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, baking troubles, or are just epicurious about the topics discussed today, you can send an email to epicureanunicorn at If your question is short and sweet, we may even feature it on the show. Epicurean Unicorn is a production of the Parados Corporation. Help us to keep spreading the magic of food through continued conversation and the pursuit of knowledge. This has been a Studio 47 production.